This show contains strong language. Listener discretion is advised. It's September 1974. Don King is sitting on a little stage in the chandelier-lit ballroom of the iconic and bougie Waldorf Astoria. In front of him is the press corps in their button-downs and sports coats, their cameras pointed at Don. Don's been looking forward to this event for months. He's looking sharp in a houndstooth sport coat, and he's showing off the new hairstyle he's been trying out. It's not the full Don King do, but he's grown out a medium-sized afro, tapered it along the sides, and combed it straight up. You can tell he's feeling himself by his confident smile. But right now, stealing Don's camera time and the attention of the entire room is the man seated to Don's right. I've done something new for this fight. Muhammad Ali. I have wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. Yep, they're back at it again. It's been two years since the hospital benefit, and Don and Ali are working together on a new fight. Today's press conference is the official announcement. I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. Man, dude. Ooh, he's laying on the smack talk extra thick today, because this isn't just any other fight. It's Ali's chance to regain the heavyweight title, a match that will pit him against the current heavyweight champion, George Foreman. Foreman is younger than Ali. Foreman is stronger than Ali. And Foreman is the favorite to win. But Ali, he doesn't seem to care. All of you chumps are gonna bow when I whoop him. I know you got him picked, but the man's in trouble. I'm gonna show you how great I am. Now, most of the reporters would leave that day thinking that the story was about Ali and his big talk and his comeback. But Don King had just gotten out of prison three years ago. And he had done some unbelievable wheeling and dealing behind the scenes to make all this happen. Don had guaranteed Foreman and Ali an unprecedented $5 million each. And he had secured most of the money from a murderous African dictator, Mobutu Sese Seiko. The fight, which would end up being known as the Rumble in the Jungle, will go down as one of the greatest events in sports and entertainment history. And all of that was because of Don King. Today, the story of the rumble in the jungle and Don's own fight to control the greatest fighter of all time. This is Power, Don King. Episode 2, The Greatest. Don King had been chasing Muhammad Ali for a long time, since before the charity benefit in Cleveland, even before he went to prison for killing Sam Garrett. This is Mike Ezra, who wrote a book about Ali called The Making of an Icon. I'm a professor at Sonoma State University in the American Multicultural Studies Department. And my book tried to look at Ali from an economic perspective. Mike says there's proof of Don King's chase of Ali going all the way back to the 60s. In 1966, Ali fought Cleveland Williams. Donald King, the numbers running kingpin, made the trip down from Ohio to Houston, Texas to see the fight years before he could ask Lloyd Price to make the introduction. Ali won in the third round. Folks started rushing up out of their seats to get to him. At the end of the fight, Don King's in the ring. It's incredible to see on the film is he doesn't have his hair and he's dressed in a different mode, but it's 100% guaranteed it's Don King and there's written accounts of it. It's pretty wild to see. Don's an arm's length away from the champ. He's talking in his direction, 
but is clearly being drowned out by all of the noise around him. Eventually, he gets pulled away by the sea of people trying to get to Ali. It almost seems that he was poised to get into boxing and tap onto Ali right at the moment things go wrong for him. And things really did go wrong for Don. It was three months after that fight that he went to trial for killing Sam Garrett and ended up with a four-year bid in prison. Don was still locked up when Ali started his comeback after being banned from boxing for three years for refusing to register for the draft. He had to listen to Ali losing to Joe Frazier on the radio from inside Marion Correctional Institution. But once he got out and had set his sights on becoming big in boxing, Don did everything he could to get close to the man they called the greatest. He finally got somewhere with that charity fight in Cleveland in 1972 and almost immediately started trying to parlay his connection into something even bigger. Don promoted a few boxing matches on his own. Then on January 28, 1974, Muhammad Ali beat Joe Frazier in a rematch. And Don was like, hmm, what if I could get Ali to let me promote a fight where he tried to reclaim his heavyweight title? Muhammad Ali, with his antics and his, his constant self-promotion, made for every promoter's dream. And the man Ali would have to fight to get his title back? George Foreman. Before he became the smiley dude with the grill empire, he was well known for a different reason. Boxing journalist Radio Raheem says Foreman was a terror in the ring. George Foreman was the boogeyman. George Foreman was the heaviest-handed fighter. He was a giant. He was not an affable guy. I don't think you can overstate how much of an intimidating presence he was. Don wasn't the only promoter who had thought of this matchup. Promoters with way more experience and way more clout than Don were lusting for Ali versus Foreman. And this wasn't a situation where Don could just call up his buddy Lloyd Price to set it up like that Cleveland charity fight. This was a fight for the heavyweight championship of the world. But Don, he was like, I got this. My name is Gene Kilroy. I was the business manager for Muhammad Ali, but I've been friends with him for many, many years. Gene says within a week or two of the Ali Frazier fight, Don had already set up a meeting with Ali's people. Don King met with Herbert Muhammad. Herbert Muhammad, the uh, son of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, was his manager. Rahim says part of Herbert's role was to say no to people like Don King. Herbert Muhammad's job with Muhammad Ali, first and foremost, is really to protect his fighter from all the elements of boxing that will diminish either his paydays, his health, or his best interest. And in this sport in particular, you are surrounded by parasites. So uh, Herbert Muhammad is protective like a parent. But Don had a plan for Herbert because Herbert Muhammad wasn't just any manager. His father was Elijah Muhammad, leader of the Nation of Islam, the black nationalist movement that Muhammad Ali had pledged his life to in 1964. This is Elijah Muhammad addressing his followers in one of his regular radio broadcasts. People of the black nation are a nation. We must prepare for our departure from this people. It is impossible for us to get along in peace with a people who by nature is our enemy. So Don played the solidarity card. He said, we have no black promoters. No lie there. Ali's promoters up to this point had all been white, including his lawyer, this guy Bob Arum. 
Aram had promoted some of Ali's earlier fights and definitely wanted to promote this one. But like Elijah Muhammad said, every black man under the sun are brothers. And that idea of brotherhood meant lifting each other up and working together. So then, Don played his ace. He was like, Herbert, how about this? How about you let me put together a fight between Ali and Foreman? And I guarantee that Ali gets paid $5 million. That was more than any boxer had been guaranteed ever. And Don would pay Ali $100,000 just to sign a contract. If Don couldn't get Foreman to agree to the fight within two days, Ali got to keep that money. And Gene Kilroy remembers Don ended up convincing Herbert in the end. So Herbert said, I'll give you the opportunity. Which was great. But Don still had some things to figure out. Like how to convince George Foreman he even wanted to fight Ali. And how to come up with the millions of dollars a fight like this was going to require. Don was out here doing the most, making all of these promises. Promises that even he didn't know whether he'd be able to deliver. Don King wasn't quite starting from scratch with George Foreman. He had met him at least once before all this. In 1973, Don flew down to Jamaica to watch Foreman fight Joe Frazier for the heavyweight championship. Famously, Don arrived in Frazier's entourage, but after Foreman won by technical knockout in the second round, Don suddenly showed up in Foreman's corner, celebrating with the new champ. And when the fighters left the arena, Don didn't leave with the fighter he came with, with Frazier. He left with Foreman. In interviews, Don never tried to hide how it all went down. If Joe had knocked George to one knee, he would have gone home with Joe. More than likely. More than likely I would have went home with Joe because to the victor goes to spoils. And if I was anticipating going into the ring of promoting boxing, you promote winners, you don't promote losers. In fact, Don seemed almost proud of the way he acted. Isn't this where people begin to doubt Don King? He's got fighter A in one corner, he's got fighter B in uh, the other corner. One of the fighters is going to lose, and no matter what, Don King's going to win. That's the way it's supposed to be. It's in America, man. That's enterprise. I didn't write the rules. But knowing George Foreman wasn't the same thing as being able to sign George Foreman for a fight. Right after meeting with Ali in early 1974, Don flew out to California to meet up with Foreman. But Ali's friend Gene Kilroy says the heavyweight champ was skeptical. So Don King goes to uh, George Foreman. He says, you know, this is a good fight for you. George said, well... If I beat him, I get no credit. He's an old man. Plus, Foreman was concerned about the optics. Who wants to piss off the entire world by knocking out the most famous man on the planet? But you know what can make you forget about all that? Five million dollars. Don dangles that offer in front of George, and voila. So George signs it. Let's talk about that paperwork for a second, though. Remember, Don was on the clock to get Foreman. So he didn't have time to have a formal contract drawn up. He had to improvise. Don got Foreman to basically sign his life away. And what's crazy is that the reason we know this is that Don bragged about it for years afterwards. We got Foreman to go along with his lawyer and he signed seven blank sheets of paper. Saves sign here, sign here, sign here, sign here. I've agreed to plenty of terms and conditions without reading, but blank sheets of paper, that's crazy. The plan was Don and Foreman's lawyer, Steve Bomza, would figure out the exact details later. And me and Steve Bomza put that contract together. 
And then Steve would call him on every paragraph and read it to him and, and said he okayed it and uh, former lived up to every bit of it. Now, nobody had ever promised two boxers as much as King was promising. But Mike Ezra says it made sense from Don's perspective. So he figured out what the right number was and people said, you're crazy. There's no way you can pay the fighters that much. No one else did before. Don King must have realized that if you don't start on top in boxing, you're going to get eaten up by someone who is on top. Culture writer Michael Harriet says the way Don put together this fight, those were moves someone without Don King's background might not have even tried. When you look at Don King's life, whether it was running gambling houses or just hustling, he had a unique skill set. It wasn't necessarily unique to boxing, but he was a master strategist. He was essentially a carnival barker who kind of transferred his hustling ability into the fight game. But now he had to stand behind that $10 million flex. And that much money can't be pulled out of thin air. Unless, you know, you're Don King. What comes next is King's own version of The Amazing Race. He had four months to get his hands on $10 million and find a place to hold the fight. And no U.S. venue was going to shell out that much for a boxing match, especially to an inexperienced black promoter like Don King. I signed these two guys and, and I thought I did something remarkable. And in effect, it was remarkable, but not here at home. So I had to go out and go around the world. King owed Ali a first installment of $100,000 in a matter of days. So it was time for Don to pull out a little of that Don King magic. According to Don, his first prospect, a very powerful man in the Middle East. I just had a determination that I was not going to fail. My first backer was uh, King Faisal. King Faisal of Saudi Arabia. Um, unfortunately, he died. Okay. Well, not the best start out of the gate, but Don shook it off. He jumped on a plane to London, where he said he met with the chairman of a British gambling company. He told me in uh, that if I got these two guys to sign, that he would back it. But when, uh, when I did it, he said, I never thought you could do that. So, so therefore, he backed out. Damn. Don was underestimated and got played. But he didn't have time to get in his feelings because he had to find Ali a cool $2.3 million by March 15th, or the fight was off. Don had to call in some spiritual backup. So finally, in uh, praying to God and God leading me, uh, a fellow named Fred Weimar. Now, Weimar, he was a pretty shady dude. He had been a member of an American political group that had supported the Nazis and had somehow managed to get himself banned from the U.S. He had landed on his feet, though, and was now working as a kind of fixer to the president of Zaire, Mobutu Sese Seiko. Around the time that Don was out trying to hustle up money for his fight, Mobutu had Fred Weimer working the phones trying to cook up some giant event he can put on in Zaire to put the country on the map. Like, you know, a fight for the heavyweight championship of the world. Don meets up with Fred in Paris, and Fred introduces Don to Mobutu's money guy. And then the president of Zaire put a guy with me named Manduga Bula. And uh, from there, we, had, we pulled it together. They agree that Mobutu will put up the money for the fight, and in exchange, that the fight will take place in Zaire's capital, Kinshasa. No matter that Mobutu was the kind of leader who publicly hanged his own officials and tortured folks he was suspicious of with no second thought, Mobutu had the money, and that was good enough for Don. But then, the money kept getting delayed. 
Don rolled up to the bank and they told him it wasn't there. Don came back the next day, same thing. And remember, Don was on a deadline. My due date, the banker supposedly got sick. I'm in Belgium. And so I tell the Manduga Bula, I say, Manduga, I say that I don't believe this man is sick. Don tries to put the heat on Manduga. Like, you really want to screw this up from Mobutu? You know, if I miss this date, I said we're going to lose this fight, and your president's going to be embarrassed. Mobutu was not the kind of leader you wanted to get on the wrong side of. Don, by the way, was right about the banker in Zaire. He turned out to not be sick at all. He was out by the pool throwing back cocktails until Mobutu caught up to him and threw him in jail. After that, the money came through just fine. But for Don, it was too late. By the time the $9.6 million was all sorted, the deadline had passed. Luckily for Don, though, Herbert Mohammed was in Libya. He was meeting with Muammar Gaddafi. Yep, another dictator, just in case Don's mission failed. And the way Don tells it, that let him be saved one last time by divine intervention. God would have it. The lights in Libya went out. So when he did come, to the phone three or four days later, the money was there, you know what I mean? So it's really a story of uh, faith. It was an arduous journey, but the reward is in the journey. I persevered. I mean, sometimes God really just wants Don King to get what he wants. Now that the business dealings were settled, it was time for Don to really show out. It might take a pair of dictators and some shady money to do it, but Don King was going to turn this promotion into the biggest and blackest cultural event that sports and entertainment had ever seen. More on that after the break. Now, Don King may have thrown in a dash of cynicism when he played up racial solidarity to convince Herbert Muhammad to let him promote the fight, but actually being in Africa seemed to awaken something in him. An event of that magnitude, two fighters of color, and a promoter who's running the show of color. Like, this is a point of pride that this could even take place. He replaced his sports coats and button downs with dashikis at press events. He talked about the global black struggle and the strength of the black community. In addition to the fight, Don had gotten his old friend Lloyd Price to put together a three-day concert beforehand with pretty much every heavy hitter in black music. I'm talking B.B. King, Bill Withers, The Spinners, Lloyd himself, and the godfather of soul, James Brown. Don used the concert as part of the way he sold the Rumble in the Jungle, as being about way more than just boxing. Getting these super giants to come into one fold and do one thing 6,000 miles from home, that was blackness. That was the strength. To accept blackness, to help blackness, to trust blackness. And Michael Harriet says, for black America, this hit on many levels. You think about that time when during the Black Power era, it was a little after the Civil Rights Movement when Black people were kind of finding themselves and their African roots. And to have the biggest sports spectacle in the world happening in Africa, put on by this African government who had recently cast off the chains of oppression of white people. It was a glorious thing. Now, the concert itself was kind of a mess. For the first two nights, the 70,000-seat stadium was mostly empty. But then, Mobutu flexed that dictator's muscle and told his folks he wanted a full house. And for the third night, 
the place was packed. Meanwhile, Ali and Foreman brought their own spectacle to Africa. Gene Kilroy flew with the fighters from the U.S. We got there late at night. We came off the airplane. Everybody's yelling, Ali, Ali. He was already the fan favorite. I mean, he was one of the most recognizable people in the world. But Ali wanted to clinch that title even more. So Ali turned to me. He said, who don't they like? I said, I guess white people. Well, I can't tell them George is a white person. So who? I said the Belgians. Belgium being the brutal colonizers of the Congo, the country that Mobutu renamed Zaire. Ali shushed the crowd to make an announcement, and he told them, George Foreman's a Belgium. And they start screaming, Ali Boumaye, Ali Boumaye. I said, what's that mean? He said, that means Ali, kill him. And it's not like Foreman did much to help himself. When the Belgians were in control back in the day, they would go on patrol with German shepherds to control the black folks. But nobody seems to have told this to Foreman. So here comes George Foreman. When he gets off the airplane, he has his dog with him, a German shepherd. I said, we're home free now. I don't know that George Foreman deserved to be the villain, but he played the role well. Radio Rahim says that the way the rivalry played out between Ali and Foreman was great for Don King. Foreman, the brooding bad guy, and Ali at this point in his career, the likable underdog. Nothing sells tickets more than a good guy and a bad guy. You're rooting for Muhammad Ali. If he can pull it off, well, then that's a bit of a victory for all of us. On October 30th, the day of the fight, the stadium is packed with 60,000 spectators and press from all over the world. It's late. The fight begins at 4 in the morning. But if anyone is tired, you can't tell at all. Mobutu, who spent all his country's money to host this event, is absent. He's holed up in his mansion watching on closed-circuit television, but sends a 40-foot portrait of himself to be hung at the stadium in his place. Gene still remembers everything about the day of the fight. Well, there was so much excitement and electricity in the air, and Ali, Ali was relaxed. Ali talks on the phone with Elijah Muhammad while Gene takes a trip to see what Foreman's up to. Turns out, he's hyping himself up, getting ready to throw down. I went down there with tape in George's hands. Feel death in the air. So I go back to Ali. Ali said, what's he talking? I said, he's talking about putting your kids in an orphanage. With the fight about to start, Ali makes his way to the ring while a brass band plays. As he parts the ropes and eases his way in, the crowd rises to their feet, hyping this underdog with their cheers and chants of, Ali, Bumaye. It's incredibly hot and humid. The 80-degree weather has folks who've worn their best peeling off a layer for relief. Ali's already dripping sweat, and he hasn't thrown a single punch yet. Minutes later, a hurried foreman jogs in with his team in tow. Pockets of the crowd erupt into booze, but he stays stone-faced. He and Ali start to shadow box and dance in their corners. Even the people who loved Muhammad Ali were kind of like in the back of their minds, can he beat this dude? It's David and Goliath. It's the guy who nobody thinks can lose, but everybody believes is the wrong guy to win. I mean, this dude, like George Foreman, they said, hit like a mule kick. For the first seven rounds, George Foreman wailed on Ali, and Ali just took it. He laid on the ropes, and Foreman worked him like a heavy bag. 
it was looking dicey for him. Ali continues to try to tie his man up. Zach Clayton separates him. Wild left hand, vicious hook. There's a real strong right hand just underneath the heart. And Muhammad Ali is taking some punishment now. About 25 seconds left in the round. What I remembered most about that fight was being scared. Like, how can he keep taking this kind of abuse and survive? That you would ever imagine a guy would be like, I can absorb that kind of punishment for eight rounds. He beat up Muhammad Ali in that fight. You think that any minute now, one of these shots from Foreman is going to put Muhammad Ali to sleep. But they never did. The whole time he was taking those hits, Ali was playing Foreman. Muhammad is allowing Foreman to come in on him, inviting him in, talking to him. Angelo Dundee screaming from the corner, Ali, get off those ropes. But Ali it was a masterful ploy to tire him out. It became known as the rope-a-dope. Until you see the rope-a-dope, you can't see a rope-a-dope coming. Ali would come off the ropes move away from Foreman, then lie back on a new stretch of ropes. Foreman's punches got slower and sloppier. He was so exhausted that at times, he seemed to crumple forward into Ali, only to stand upright again and go back to banging away at him. And then, in the eighth round with 15 seconds to go, Ali came to life. He dances out of the corner away from Foreman and unleashes six quick punches, the final one landing square on Foreman's jaw. Foreman wobbles backwards, then just as quickly plunges forward toward the mat. His body hangs in the air for an instant, then spins so that he lands flat on his back. The referee bends down over Foreman counting him out while Ali paces around the ring. Three, four, five. Foreman tries to stand, but the referee waves his arms calling the fight. Even the men in Ali's corner seemed stunned by what they witnessed. To have such a reversal of fortune before your eyes is something nobody would ever forget. Ali throws his gloved hands in the air. His entourage and hella fans began to pour into the ring, surrounding him until he slumps down to the mat in exhaustion. While the crowd in Kinshasa and the one billion people watching via satellite go wild, it slowly seems to dawn on Ali just what he's achieved. Now, Ali would go down in history for reclaiming his heavyweight title in the ring that night, but etched in the same books would be the other winner of the Rumble in the Jungle, Don King. The Rumble in the Jungle started him on the path to becoming the biggest promoter in the fight game. And it, it, it also put him on a pedestal as far as imagining what boxing could look like. If you can put on and manage an event of that magnitude, then you get credibility. You get the moniker of a super fight promoter. That means you are a generator of success. You are a generator of money. He got the world's attention. Not just the world of boxing, but the world of business. Don has options now. After Zaire, he comes home and signs deals with all these new boxers. But he knows job number one is keep the champ happy. 
Ali, on the other hand, well, he might have his own concerns, as Raheem puts it. But what's next for me as champion? What can you put together to maximize my earning potential and keep the spotlight as hot and bright as it was on the night that I won the title? But the gears in Don's brain are already cranking. That's what Don King was amazing at continuing to craft, the next best thing. I've already got a plan for the next fight. This will earn you more money this way. This will keep the spotlight on you. This is the guy you should fight. And in this corner, world champion Joe Frazier. Ali and Frazier had already gone toe-to-toe twice before in two brutal matches. But Don knew the public was hungry for a third. So he ripped out a page from his Zaire playbook. He found another dictator that needed an event, a spotlight like that, who needed some distraction from what was happening politically. This time, Don had his eyes on the Philippines and its president, Ferdinand Marcos. Now, Marcos, you could say he was having a little bit of trouble. Marcos does not have the support of the people and he's nothing but a military dictator. And Raheem says that after dealing with Mobutu, Don had kind of figured out how to handle a man in his position. Don King's not coming and asking, can we have the fight here? He's coming to him saying, you need the fight here, and I can make that happen for you. Here's what you have to do for me so that I can do this for you. And Marcos was like, yeah, let's do that. He ponied up $4 million and added his name to the Dictator Boxing Hall of Fame. They want to be seen as successful, as champions, as being able to accomplish something for their country. The heavyweight champion of the world and the superstar in boxing coming to your country is a huge win and a huge distraction from what has possibly been recent failures. That fight between Ali and Frazier was known as the Thrilla in Manila. It was another victory for Ali and another victory for Don King. Don knew that the more closely he could connect himself to Ali, the higher up the boxing food chain he could climb. There's no better position to be in as a promoter than to have the premier fighter of your era. Don King wants to become Muhammad Ali's sole promoter because Muhammad Ali is the heavyweight champion of the world and the biggest draw in boxing, which means everything would have to then run through Don King. But whenever Don would try to bring this up with Ali and his manager, Herbert Muhammad, they were like, nah, we're going to keep our options open. So Don pulled out some of the oldest tricks in the promoter's playbook. You find out what the towel guy is into, what the towel guy might want. You find out what the best friend is vulnerable to, or even possible to be blackmailed by. You find out what every little thing that people have as a vulnerability and turn that against them so that you can turn the fighter toward you. Gene Kilroy says, it worked. Don King had everyone on the payroll in all his training camp, but I believe you can only serve one master. He couldn't buy me off or, or rent me. I'm not for sale. Well, maybe Gene wouldn't take Don's money, but other folks were more than willing to play along. When another promoter would try to sign Ali, Don's accomplices would rush to his defense. All the guys would start, oh, but what about Don King? I mean, there were so many deals, side deals. You know, I wasn't into that. What Don ultimately wanted was for Ali to get rid of his manager, Herbert Muhammad, 
and give control over to Don. But Don underestimated just how deep Ali's ties to Herbert were. He didn't really understand the tenets of the Nation of Islam. He didn't understand what it was that was the bond between this brotherhood that he was trying to infiltrate. Nor probably did he understand how often they dealt with those kind of tactics inside the Nation of Islam. Herbert didn't make a play to get ahead of Don and warn Ali. He didn't have to. So where Don King might have been using old tried and true tricks, he was using them on people who had seen that and better before and exposed himself as the real snake, playing the game of trying to turn people's inner circle against them. The ultimate punishment for being caught is being ostracized yourself. And he got ostracized, rightly so. He'd proven that he could make big deals, get paydays that Ali had never seen, and thought that that was enough to gain his loyalty. Money may have been Don's motivation, but to Ali and Herbert, the almighty dollar didn't reign supreme. Ali let Don promote three more fights for him, and then he cut ties with Don and went back to his old promoter, the white guy, his lawyer, Bob Arum. As of 1978, Don King was out on his own, but Don, wasn't going to stay down for long. Next time on Power, Don King. I heard all this noise. Terrible Tim. It's going to be me and you. Terrible Tim. Ali came in. He said, yeah, I'm getting ready to fight Larry Holmes, and uh, I want you to be on my team. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> that was crazy. Don King, he controlled the majority of the boxing business. He had the judges. He had the officials, he had everybody, so you couldn't run that far. This particular Friday, Carl King didn't come with the checks, so everybody got in their cars. And we drove around to Don King's mansion, and so we just knocking on the door, yo, Carl, come on, man, we need our money. I, I, I called in, everybody was in my corner, and I said, look, man, this is it. I'm going down in the first round. If you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show was hosted by me, Panama Jackson. Our producer is Tiffany Walker. Associate producers are Kyra Asabe Bonsu and India Whitkin. Our editor is Keith Romer. Mixing and sound design by Evan Arnett at Spoke Media. Fact checking by Natsumi Ajasaka and production management by Jennifer Mystery. Our executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. Our theme song is by Nolan Schneider. Special thanks to Grant Irving and Steve Ackerman.